Look with me in the book of Galatians. Chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Right at the beginning of the year. Just seems like a really good opportunity to talk about vision. God's vision. Vision for your life. Vision for your family. And that's exactly why I thought I was going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> Until late last night and early this morning. And all of that got turned upside down. And uh, the Lord just really directed my heart into some things that I wasn't expecting. But man, I am excited about it tonight. Your kids are hearing about vision tonight. So when you get in the car, let them preach to you a little bit. Let them talk to you about vision and what it means to live with a vision from God. It'll bless you. Uh, you might learn a few things. But tonight, I believe that the Lord wants to say some things to us from His Word that I am so stirred up about it. Are you ready to shout? Yes. I hope you are. And I, and I hope you engage with this tonight. And, and like we talked about earlier, respond. Hear yourself come into agreement with the Word. And watch what it does for you. In the book of Galatians chapter 4, Let's read the last several verses of this chapter and go into chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21, Galatians 4, 21, and I'm going to read from the New King James. First, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Verse 28, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. This is talking about us, you and me. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Amen. What did he say? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. What is liberty? It's freedom. Amen. Listen to this from a, another few translations. The NIV, you've heard this before, chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The Amplified Bible says, In this freedom, Christ has made us free. I like this. And completely liberated us. Amen. Stand fast then and do not be hampered and held ensnared and submit again to a yoke of slavery which you've once put off. The New Living said, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. I read to you from the Passion Translation earlier. This is, this is the Passion again for Galatians 5.1. I like this. Let me be clear. I like that. Let me be clear. The Anointed One has set us free, not partially, but completely and wonderfully free. We must always cherish this truth and stubbornly refuse to go back into the bondage of our past. Let me be clear. <laughs> the anointed one has set us free. You and I enjoy some marvelous freedoms as Americans, 
we have been given by our government, by the establishing of our government, some national freedoms. And they are precious. They are valuable. And they are not found in too many other places around the world. You do a little bit of traveling, you see that. You experience that. The atmosphere is different where there is fewer freedoms. We've seen it some. Some of the freedoms that you and I enjoy, the, the freedom of religion, the freedom to worship, the freedom to assemble, the freedom of the press, and so on and so on. Some of these things, we, we talk a lot about them, but it's easy to take them for granted. But this place, the United States of America, was sought out and searched for by people who were looking for one thing, freedom. It was people who were tired and done with the state telling them where to worship and how to worship and who to worship and when to worship. And they said, we got to get out of here. And they sought out a new place where they could worship how? Freely. This place was sought out for one thing, freedom. You fast forward a hundred years or so after that, a little more, and even before this was established as a nation, men and women were hungry to be free. The American Revolution, the Revolutionary War, was fought over one thing. People who wanted what? Freedom. What did Patrick Henry say? Give me liberty or give me death. I want freedom. I want liberty. And many men and women did die for the sake of freedom. And many, many, many more have died since that time to protect freedom, to protect freedom on our shores, to install and instill freedom in other places around the world. And you and I enjoy some amazing freedoms. But all the freedom that's given to us because we're Americans as great as those freedoms are, as much as we should be thankful for them and thank God for them, those freedoms don't even begin to compare to the freedom we have in Jesus. Amen. To the freedom that He died for. If you had to put in one word what God's original intent for mankind was, what he intended originally for their condition to be and the condition in which they live, his original intent for us was to be free. That's the first thing he gave Adam and Eve in the garden was freedom. That was the first gift he gave them. Did he not say in the book of Genesis chapter 2 that he put them in the garden and then he said to them, look around, of all the fruit of all these trees you may eat, how? Huh? Freely. That's a gift. Free gift. They didn't work for it. They didn't buy it. They didn't earn it. It was a gift. But freedom isn't really freedom until you have to make a choice to have it. That's why there had to be the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. It had to be there. God had to give man the opportunity to choose him. That's true freedom. If it hadn't been there and it was nothing but, you know, everything else that he wanted him to eat, did they really choose him? You see what I'm saying? So it was there so they had opportunity to choose him. And it's the exact same thing he said through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. I call heaven and earth to record this day. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Then what do you say? Let me help you. Can I make a recommendation to you? If I were you, God says, what do you say? Choose life. I beg you. I got to give you the choice. I have to give you options, but I'm telling you, choose life. Choose blessing. And what did man do? They chose the curse. What did Adam do? What did Eve do? They chose to eat of that tree. And when they did, God had told them, when you eat of this, you will die. 
But see, we've got to change and rewire the way we understand what it means to die. Death is not just the cessation of a heartbeat. That, that's not the only thing death is. As a matter of fact, people have a lot more death in their life leading up to that moment than they realize. But when man chose death, you know this, he didn't die on the spot. Adam's heart didn't stop. Eve's heart didn't stop. They didn't fall physically dead on that, in that moment. But they chose death and they allowed through sin... They allowed death in. And what they didn't realize and what the snake, what Satan failed to tell them is what you're really choosing is the loss of all the freedom. You are forfeiting all the freedom. That is death. To have every freedom stripped from you. That's why Patrick Henry said what he did. Give me liberty or give me death. I'd rather be a dead man than a man without my freedom. Because in his eyes, it was the same thing. If I don't have freedom, I don't have life. And as, like I said, as great as all those freedoms are, and I'm thankful for them, none of them compare to the freedom that we have in Jesus. The moment Adam and Eve did what they did, and they sinned and they fell from the glory of God, this is how good God is right then. The plan of redemption went to work. Yeah. Right then, right in the garden, before they ever even got out of it, God's already telling Satan, there's one coming who will bruise your head. And this, if you had to put in a word, is what Jesus came to die and buy back. Freedom. And we talk about these things, and we amen these things, and we, that's delicious, these things, but... I have a sense in my heart, we don't fully understand what it is to live this free. This was and is Jesus' job assignment. This is what God was after. When the plan of redemption went into effect, it was motivated by one thing. I want my man free again. Because like I said, the moment Adam yielded to Satan, he gave away all that authority. See, God had given him authority. Did he not? Yes. Take dominion, subdue it, be fruitful, multiply. But what Adam gave away was authority. And when he gave away that authority, he gave away all the freedom. Who enjoys the most freedom? The one with the most authority, right? So this is what Jesus came to buy back with his own precious blood was to give you and I the authority again. To reinstate our authority and our dominion. And to give us our freedom back. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. In verse 18, Jesus makes very clear to us what his job assignment is, what his job description is. You know what I mean by job description. If you have a job, if you work in a place for somebody else, chances are you were given when you started there a piece of paper or something that outlined for you what the expectation was for you in this job. That's what a job description is. These are the things you're going to be doing. These are the things we're going to ask you to do. And in that job description and on that job, if you work at a good place at least, they're going to equip you to do that job. It would be unfair for an employer to say, do this, but then not equip you with the tools to get it done. So along with that job description and the outline of what it is you're supposed to be doing should come the equipping to get done what you're being asked to do. We see all of that right here in these verses. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. There's the equipment. The anointing is the tool. The anointing is the equipment that God 
gave Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord, he said, is on me because he's anointed me. Okay, that's the equipment to do what? What's the job description? Job description? To preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What you got to understand is that what Jesus is describing here is the condition that all mankind was in up until Him. Every man, every woman, from the fall of Adam to this moment right here, was poor and impoverished. I don't care how much money they had in the bank. Until Jesus, unless and until Jesus is invited into their lives, they're a poor person. They might be a poor person with money, but they are a poor person. That's poverty. A life with no Jesus in it. That's poverty. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me. He's anointed me to do what? Preach the gospel to the poor. What's the gospel? What does gospel mean? It means good news. What's good news to the poor? You don't have to be poor. That's good news to the poor. Man, and the world and our government and many other governments doing everything they know to do to, quote unquote, attack poverty. Make poverty history, they say. Let's get rid of poverty. And you can't do it without the gospel. You might band-aid something. You might feed somebody for a little while. You might shelter them for a little bit. But if you don't give them the gospel, nothing has changed. And people who want to fight the so-called prosperity message, what do you, they, they, they call it the prosperity gospel. That's a redundancy in terms. The gospel is prosperity. The gospel is good news to the poor. What's Jesus' method of making poverty history? Preach the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to them. He said, the Spirit's on me, the, the, the anointing's on me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I want you to notice how every one of these job assignments, if you will, has to do with restoring freedom. Poverty is a prison. Having constant lack, that's not freedom. That's a prison, man. The inability to go where you want to go, do what you want to do, have what you desire to have, that's a prison. And I want you to notice how many of these, nearly every single one of them that Jesus deals with, really has to do with bringing people out of prison and restoring freedom. Prosperity is about far more than you being able to look at your bank account and go, whew, that looks good. That's not what prosperity is about. Prosperity is not about you just having money to blow and and being wasteful. That's not what any of this is about. Prosperity is about purpose and assignment. It's about the ability to do what God asked you to do, when He asked you to do it, being willing and able to liquidate, if He said, and put it all in the kingdom, or help bring somebody up out of a low place, or put gas in their tank, like we said earlier, or or, or make a house payment, or pay the whole thing off. You understand what I'm saying? It's about purpose. It's about assignment. It's about freedom. How many of you would like the freedom to do that? Yeah. That's what prosperity is best about, freedom. They don't call it debt freedom for no reason. It's about being free. It's about being unrestricted and unobligated to anybody else but Jesus. He's bringing people out of prison. What else did he say? The, The anointing is on me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Living with a constantly broken heart, bitter because of the past, because of what people have said, because of the way you've been treated, because of the horrible things you've been through. Living in that state is an absolute prison. It It, it restricts your uh, relationships moving forward because of the way you've been hurt before. You won't 
you won't fully engage in a relationship now. Oh, I've, I've been to church before. Man, I got burned and I got hurt and, and it's just a bunch of hypocrites. That's a broken heart. And it's not okay to live with that. That's a break in the heart. And this heart is to be guarded above all else because out of it flow the issues of life. And the anointing was and is on Jesus to heal that, to set you free from that prison. Amen. What else did he say? To proclaim. Notice how much of this has to do with preaching and proclaiming. To proclaim liberty to the captives. What's liberty? It's freedom. To preach. This is Jesus' message. This is his assignment to preach freedom. That word captives, look it up, literally means prisoners. To preach liberty to the prisoners. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Among other things, the acceptable year of the Lord was about freedom. It was about slaves going free. It was about debts being canceled. Can you see this? How every single one of these, these assignments on the life and ministry of Jesus was all about reaching into the prison that mankind was in and pulling them out by the Spirit of God and the anointing that was on Him. The anointing that was on Him to lift burdens, remove burdens, and destroy yokes. I'm telling you something. Jesus was anointed to destroy the burden and the yoke of poverty. And to this day, He is anointed to lift that burden and destroy that yoke. He was and is anointed to destroy the burden and the yoke of a broken heart. He was and is anointed to lift that burden and destroy the yoke of being prison, imprisoned and captive. And He did it by preaching freedom to you. Just preaching freedom. Well, if Jesus preaches freedom, what should we be preaching? This is our message. This is our ministry to preach this freedom. Sarah and I were uh, a couple of summers ago driving with the kids from Fort Worth, where we lived at the time, up to see her family and go to church in Branson, Missouri. And it's about an eight-hour drive. And we've done it so many different times. And we were going up through Oklahoma. And there's a long stretch of road there where you don't see too much. Uh, we're starting to come into a little town called Atoka, Oklahoma. And we hadn't seen a whole lot in a while. And, and up ahead of me to my right, on the right-hand side of the road, was this giant yellow sign with big black block letters that said, Warning, hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. Well, my first thought was like, well, that's, that's good advice. That's good information. Good words to live by. Hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. So think twice before you pick somebody up. It all made sense about a quarter mile down the road when on the left-hand side of the road, there was this giant prison, this giant enclosure with these huge, tall metal fences with razor wire, two rows of razor wire around the whole thing. Made more sense now of what you're reading about, right? Hitchhikers might be people who made their way out of this place. And that, for some reason, just stuck with, my, stuck with me. Hitchhikers may be escaping inmates. And I don't know why, other than the Lord just leading me to do it. I looked it up later, find out what that prison was, started reading about it. There was over 2,000 inmates in that prison. And the Lord started talking to me about all the different things that his people, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about his people, live imprisoned by. And even though we enjoy all those freedoms we talked about a moment ago, there are people who live absolutely bondaged up on the inside. And again, I'm not talking about the rest of the world. We know they're in prison. I'm talking about people who have been set free and don't know it. I'm talking about people sitting up in a prison with the door wide open. It's not okay. But I believe tonight I'm looking at a room full of escaping inmates. Amen. I'm looking at a room full of people tonight who are making their way out of prison. Stepping fully into the freedom that Jesus came to get back for us. 
Somebody say, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. The Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus and is on Him because He's anointed Him to bring freedom in every one of these areas. But this is the way the Lord said to me this afternoon. To really live in your freedom, you got to know what you're freed from. We talk a lot about freedom, but you got to know what you've been freed from to live in your freedom. And it's true because it rhymes. No, that's not what makes it true. But we're going to see from the Word of God what makes it true. Uh, for the sake of time, why don't you turn to the book of John chapter 8. Well, no, we'll do it like this. John chapter 3. Now, without looking, without cheating, is there anybody in here who could tell me what verse 16 says? Don't look. Don't look. By, by a show of hands, who, who would, who's confident enough to say, yeah, I can tell you what that one says? John 3, 16. You've heard it before? For God so loved the world that he did what about it? He said, hey, I love y'all. Is that what he did? No. No, he proved it by doing what? He gave his only begotten son. That, come on, you said you knew this. Thank you. Whosoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Good, you did know it. You know it. You know what my favorite word in that whole verse is? So. I like that little word, so. We use that word, don't we? We use it to describe the state of something, the condition of something. There's a difference, right, between I'm hungry and I'm so hungry, right? You know there's a difference. The interesting thing about the word so, and you can find this if you look it up even in the dictionary, it says it's most often followed by the word that. In other words, so, and then here comes that to describe so. I'm hungry. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry I can eat a horse, I, you know, whatever. You're describing the extent of so. I love that Jesus didn't say, God loved you. I love that Jesus said, God so loved you. He so loves you. And then he proved it. That he gave his only. That's another big word. We... We derive value from things oftentimes by how precious and how rare they are, right? We, we spend a lot on jewelry, diamonds, emeralds, whatever, because supposedly they're so rare, aren't they, guys? That's why you spent so much on that. And meanwhile, there's one on every other hand in here. They're so rare. But that's one of the... One of the ways we ascribe value to something is how rare it is. God so loved you that he gave you the only thing he had just one of. Man, he could have given you anything. He could have given you a star, but he's got billions of them. He could have given you gold. He could have given you silver, but he's got tons of that stuff. He gave you the only thing he had just one of, his only begotten son. What does that say about you? Huh? You're precious. You're valuable. The price that somebody's willing to pay for something is what determines how much that thing is worth. Right? The price paid determines the value. What price was paid for you? You were not redeemed, the scripture says, with corruptible things like silver and gold. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Now don't go telling God he overpaid by saying, I'm unworthy. What are you saying? I'm not worth it. Don't tell him he overpaid for you. 
you don't get to decide what you're worth. You didn't buy you. He did. And when he did, he put value on you. And the value he put on you was the precious blood of Jesus. So we've established that all of us know John 3.16. We know it by heart. But is there anybody that would be as quick to tell me what John 3.17 and 18 and 19 say? Maybe a few. Not nearly as many. See, I believe Satan knew he could not hide John 3.16, but he's done everything he could to hide verse 17. Why? Because Jesus said, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. You want to live in your freedom? Find out what you're freed from. You want to know what you're freed from? Condemnation. As the Lord leads us in our times together, I believe we're supposed to establish at the first of this year what you and I have been freed from. And we're going to take time and find them from the scriptures and find them from the word and identify it. And when we do, we're going to say, I'm free from that. We're going to say, I'm free from that. I'm going to jump out too ahead of myself here, but I'm free from fear. What if you lived a year without fear? How would that change your life? But we're going to see things and we're going to say, I'm free from that. Jesus freed me from that. I'm a free man. I'm a free woman. Jesus freed me from that. He freed me from that. And the first thing the Lord's leading us to talk about tonight is our freedom from condemnation. We've been freed from it. But there's too many of us still living in that prison with the door wide open going, I wish I could get out. I wish I could break out. And Jesus is standing there going, door's open, man. Come on out. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved from what? Condemnation. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We are free because of what Jesus has done. We are free from condemnation. Condemnation, we need to establish what it really is. It is a, well, number one, it's a killer. Condemnation is a killer. How do I know that? It's what killed Jesus. You say, well, I thought the beating did it. No. I thought the nails and the thorns and the stripes. All those things mutilated his physical body, but every one of them were nothing but a shadow of what was going on spiritually. Condemnation killed him. The scripture says in the book of Isaiah that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace. The Amplified Bible says the chastisement needful to obtain our peace was on him. And by his stripes were healed. You know what chastisement is? Let me ask you, have you ever been chastised? It, It can mean a number of things. It could mean physically. It could also mean verbally. Anybody ever been verbally chastised? by a boss or somebody in authority, a parent, whatever. Man, what is that? That's just being chewed up, spit out, put down. And all of that was on Jesus. What killed him was not the physical aspect of the cross. It was what took place spiritually. And what took place spiritually was all the sin of all men for all time was laid on him. And what happens when sin is present? Death is present. But it's not just sin and then you drop dead. It's sin and then you are condemned to die. That's what condemnation is. It's a death judgment. It is a death sentence. And condemnation results in separation. 
Let me say it again. Condemnation results in separation. That's what killed Jesus. For the first time in his life, there was distance between him and the Father. For the first time in his, exist in his existence, there was space between him and God. Remember what he cried out? My God, why have you... What's he saying? We're not together anymore. The condemnation that was on him created separation between them. And it'll try to do the same thing in your life. What happened the day that Peter or Jesus got in Peter's boat and said, hey, can I borrow your boat? I want to preach to these people off the shore. You remember this? So he got up in the boat, pushed off the shore a little bit. He preached. Peter and the boys all heard this. And at the end of the message, Jesus turns to Peter and says, launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. And Peter said, teacher, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the net. And what happened? Who remembers? There was such a net-breaking, boat-sinking load of fish that these guys are pulling into that boat. And for Peter, this is not his hobby. This is his livelihood. This is not fish in the boat. This is money in the bank. This is food on the table. And now all of a sudden, after fishing all night, toiling all night, catching nothing, he is waist deep in fish. You would think that he would turn to Jesus and say, can we fish together again tomorrow? Can we do this every day? Because I like fishing with you. This works. Do that thing again with the fish and the boat. And the but what did he say? He's in the middle of the biggest catch he or anybody else has ever seen. And the Bible says he falls at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me. Are you kidding me? Get away from me, he said. What did he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. A sin consciousness and the condemnation that goes with that will do everything it can to put space between you and Jesus. It'll do everything it can. Why? Because condemnation totally undermines your faith. It totally undermines your confidence and it completely undermines your ability to receive from God. If you live with a constant sin consciousness, then there's no way you are coming boldly to the throne of grace. Are you kidding me? If all you know is how sinful you are and all the guilt and all the shame that goes with that and every way that you've missed it, you're not coming to the throne of grace because you're just convinced that when you get there, there's nothing but punishment, there's nothing but judgment, nothing but a sinner in the hand of an angry God. And that's what condemnation will try to do is keep you separate from the presence of God. It's a killer. I said condemnation's a killer. But you know what we're going to find out in just a couple of minutes? How to kill a killer. This is what I get excited about. We're going to find out how to kill a killer. You're there in the book of John. Go to chapter 8. Somebody say, I'm free. In John chapter 8, verse 2, it says, Now early in the morning... He, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. <clears throat> then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, that means in the middle of all the people, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, I love this, and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Did you know you can do that? There is your permission right there. Now, I don't think these religious people 
knew what was going on. But what was happening was they had allowed Satan to use them. When we read this, I want you to read it for what it is. This is a fight. It's a fight between good and evil. It's a fight between right and wrong. It's a fight between light and dark. And this woman's life hangs in the balance. But not just hers. Yours. Mine. What happened here in John 8 is about far more than Jesus being interrupted or this situation with this woman. They came to him. This whole thing was a setup. First of all, my question is, it takes two people to commit adultery. Where's the dude? Right? Where's he? This is a setup. This setup is all about shame. It's all about guilt. And they don't care one thing about this woman. They've caught her in the act. Who knows if it was that moment? Who knows if she was decently clothed? They don't care. They drag her from wherever she was, throw her in the midst, in the middle of these people, interrupt Jesus' message, and begin pressing him and pressuring him. And listen to what they came with. They said, teacher, this woman was caught in the, in the act of adultery. And Moses in his law. Now remember what we read in the first of the service? In the book of Galatians chapter 4, talking about the, the bond woman and the free woman. He said, this is the two covenants. You've got the law. You've got the grace of God. And they came to him based on that law. And they said, Moses in his law commands us to stone such a one. What do you say? The scripture says, this they said, testing him, looking for something with which they might accuse him. This is Satan. This is Satan at work. Why? Well, they came with these two options. Stone her or don't stone her. And all these people that are there to hear Jesus and all the thousands that have been drawn in crowds across this whole region, every one of them have been drawn by mercy like they've never seen before. Every one of them have been drawn by compassion like they've never seen and heard and felt before. But they come to Jesus based on this law. And now he's got two choices, stone her or don't stone her. Well, if he goes with don't stone her, then he's broken the law. And that's what they were counting on him doing, was breaking that law. They just knew he was going to be merciful. They just knew he was going to be compassionate. See, if he says don't stone her, then he's broken that law. And Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to break any of it. If he breaks that law, this whole thing is off. Hmm? Can you see why I said it's not just her life that hangs in the balance? It's yours. It's mine. If he breaks that law, he doesn't go to the cross as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He doesn't go to the cross with the law fulfilled. But then right on the other hand, if he says, okay, go ahead and stone her, then all these people that have been drawn by love like they've never seen, compassion like they've never seen, mercy in a way they've never seen, now all of a sudden, he is just like all these other hard-hearted Pharisees and everybody walks away confused. So what do you do? This is what Jesus started writing in the ground. Just knelt down and started playing in the dirt. Why? He's waiting. He doesn't say anything until he hears his father say it. He's waiting on a word from God. He's waiting on the wisdom of God. Amen? Yeah. And he's waiting on the witness of the Spirit. Three things. This is patience at work. Because when they're pressing, and the, and the scripture tells us they stood over him and continued to ask and continued to ask. Come on, we need an answer. We want an answer right now, right now, right now, right now. That's pressure. And Jesus acted like he didn't even hear it. 
What's he waiting on? A word from God, the wisdom of God, the witness of the Spirit. Verse 9, excuse me, back up. Verse 7, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. That was the wisdom of God. Nobody even knew there was an option C. But if you'll get quiet long enough to listen, the Spirit of God will tell you about C, D, E, 7, 8, not, I mean, the Spirit of God will lead you into so many different options that you didn't know you had just because you refused to bow to the pressure. He who is without you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Has no one sentenced you to death? They had evidence. They had law. They had accusation. And every right based on that law, to condemn her to death. And he says, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, you ready for this? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What did he give her? Freedom. This woman was literally on death row. And Jesus set her free. Now people would look at that and think, man, that's such a risk. You got somebody who, according to the law, man, they messed up and are worthy of death, deserving of death. And here's the evidence and here's the accusation to match it. And it seems like kind of a risk to just let that person go. Don't mistake what Jesus did by condoning what she did. Don't mistake that. He didn't condone what she did. As a matter of fact, he told her, from now on, go and sin no more. Now, she'd been told all her life, as everybody else had been, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But for the first time, the command to go and sin no more came with the power to go and sin no more. Because it came out of his mouth. And because it was connected to her freedom from condemnation. Do you realize that this right here is exactly what's going on in your life and mine all the time? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. This is what he lives night and day to do, is to find some place in your life and mine where we have missed it. And you know what? It ain't hard. He doesn't have to look hard. Am I right? Every person in this room, you, me, every single one of us have said enough, have done enough, have put a big enough sledgehammer in Satan's hand to bang us over the head for the rest of our lives of how we've missed it here and we've missed it there. And we said this when we shouldn't have and we did that when we knew better. And man, you messed that up. And man, look at the way you sinned. Look at the way you screwed that up. He's got all the evidence he needs. And this thing that happened out here this day, these guys tried to have court right out there in the middle of everybody. You've got prosecuting attorneys. You've got uh, somebody accused of a crime. You've got evidence. And that's exactly what's happening in your life and mine every day. Satan would love, does everything he can to drag you into the high court put you up in the face of God when you miss it and say, I've got evidence against this one. I, I, I've got on record their sin, what they said, what they did, every lustful thought, every, every, every covetous thought, all the greed, every curse word that's come out of their mouth, every blasphemous word, I've got it right here. Tries to haul you before the high court of heaven.
know what the scripture says? When you and I sin, we have an advocate. You know what the word advocate means? Lawyer. We have a lawyer. This is 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is your lawyer. You've got a lawyer. And what is the key to being victorious? When you're sitting there on the stand and you've been called to the stand and the, ac the accuser, the, the, the prosecuting attorney stands there and says, here's the evidence, you said this and you did that and you missed it and you sinned and you sinned and you sinned and you sinned. How do you plead? Well, that right there is where you stop and you go back to what your lawyer said. You know what the key is? Say what your lawyer told you to say. Don't sit up there on that stand when Satan starts throwing accusations and say, I did it, I did it. I'm so guilty. I'm such a jerk. I'm, I'm so sinful. I'm so awful. I'm, I'm worthy of death. Punish me. Shut up. You're losing the case right now. But go back to what your lawyer said. And, and Jesus says to you, okay, now you can take the stand. Man, he's going to come at you. He's going to come at you with everything he's got. But this is what I want you to say. And you sit there on that stand and here comes all those accusations. And as soon as Satan gets done and says, how do you plead? You just calmly and confidently lean up and say, I plead the blood. I plead the blood. This is how you kill a killer. I plead the blood. What do you mean you plead the blood? I saw what you did. I heard what you did. I tempted you to... Oh, did I say that? I saw that. You sinned. You missed it. You messed up. I've got the evidence right here. He goes to put that video in and show the court. And it's gone. It's nothing. It's a blank screen and Satan's going, what's wrong with this thing? What did I know? I have the evidence. I have the evidence, judge. It, it was here a minute ago. How do you plead? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And then the judge, God of all the heavens and the earth, sits down, the accusing attorney, and turns to your advocate, Jesus his son and says, what would you like to say? And now your advocate goes to work making intercession for you. And Jesus stands up and says, your honor, my father, this one is one of ours. This one has pled the blood. This one has been made righteous with the righteousness you gave me. You talk about freedom. That gavel comes down. And you know what? Your father says to you the same thing Jesus said to that woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. I'm giving you the power to live totally free from the authority of sin. You don't have to live in that prison another day. Because of this freedom from condemnation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let me read this to you and we'll be done. From the book of Romans, there's so much we could, so much more we could say about all this. And I believe we will. That's the thing about church. They just keep making Sundays. And you get to come back and you get to come back and you get to come back. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is therefore now. When? Now. When? Now. Every time you say it, it's updated. Now. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, or the law of sin resulting in death. <coughs> That was the law. 
The law was, you sin, you die. And again, death being much more than just the stopping of a heartbeat. It was death in every part of your life. And Paul writes and he says, I'm free from that. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has what? Made me free. I'm under a new law. There's a new law. I'm not condemned to die anymore. I thought the wages of sin is death. It is. The wages of your sin was his death. If you'll receive it. For the law, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Skip ahead to verse 31. I like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Man, it's a simple statement, but I hope you get it. Do you realize God is for you? He's not against you. He's for you. And if He's for you, who can successfully be against you? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also, check it out, freely give us all things? Verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now what he's doing here is asking these series of questions. And in the New King James, it it answers it by saying, It is God who justifies. But if you look it up in the original text, it's another question. He said, really what he said was, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? In other words, who's going to charge you with something? Huh? I can't charge you. I can't condemn you. Why? I'm guilty of all the same stuff you are. You're guilty of all the same stuff I am. This is why you and I should not be fault-finding and accusation-looking for in other people's lives. That's being used by the devil. I can't charge you with anything. I can't condemn you with anything. I'm guilty of all the same stuff you're guilty of. The only person who had any right to pick up a stone and throw, that woman, and throw it at that woman caught in adultery was Jesus. But instead of condemning her, he chose instead to free her. So that's why I asked this question, who's going to charge us? God? Is it God? He justified. Why would, why would he justify us, make us righteous, and turn around and charge us with something? It's not God. Then he asked this question, who is he who condemns? Another question here, is it Christ who died and furthermore there is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us? Who's going to condemn us, he said. This is what he's saying, I can't condemn you, you can't condemn me. The only person who has any right to condemn us to death chose instead to die in our place, chose instead to give us as a gift His own righteousness. That's the only one who could have condemned you to death. Is He going to die for you? Is He going to be raised again for you? Is He going to ever live to intercede for you and then turn around and condemn you? No, 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 no. God is not the condemner. Jesus is not the condemner. God is not the one who damns anything or anyone to death. Don't ever let that come out of your mouth. Don't you ever say to somebody, God, damn you. It's evil. I said it's evil. It's not him. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. He's not the condemner. Thank you, Lord. Who, verse 35, you ready to shout? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Sin consciousness and a condemnation consciousness will do everything it can to separate you from God, but it can't separate Him from you. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, I want you to answer each one of these. These are questions. Who's going to separate us from the love? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? No. No. As it's written, for your sake we're killed all day long. 
but we are, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate. Condemnation is separation. And he's saying, if you will believe how much you're loved. This is how you kill a killer. This is how you kill this killer. Yeah, I know you miss it. I miss it. I know you've sinned. I've sinned. We all have. We've missed it in any number of ways. But the love of God, all the love of God is so much bigger, is so much stronger, is so much louder. And nothing, if you will believe how much you're loved, condemnation can't get between you and Him. Amen. And if there's no distance between you and Him, then there's no death. This is what killed Jesus. It was that distance. It was that separation. And it's what's trying to kill you. Don't let it. You don't have to let it. You don't have to sit in a prison of condemnation on death row for another minute of your life. You can get up and walk out free. You are, in Jesus' name, an escaping inmate. Free from the prison of condemnation. Neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.